Thank you, Aaron, Heidi, Melissa. Appreciate that. Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible right there in front of you. It'd be on page 352. And a, a message simply entitled this morning, Behold Your Savior. Behold Your Savior. As we talk and get on this Christmas season, we'll be in Psalm chapter 22. And uh, I, I love this chapter. I, I, I've been encouraged in preparation over this last week or so of this message. And uh, it's spoken to me, and I trust it'll be encouragement you, to you today, December 1st, as we kind to kick off the Christmas season, we talk about Jesus Christ, and I, I won't be a very much focus on Christmas, but it is a focus on Jesus Christ this morning, which is always good. I don't know about you, but when you're reading a book, or when I've been reading a book and watching a movie or something like that, there's there's a moment that happens in that movie that is one of the best moments. It's when the main character comes on the scene, or is introduced, or arrives at the perfect time, and you know this is it. The uh, the, the main character is here; it's present. It's the same for us when we read the New Testament, isn't it? Um, one of my favorite stories is when John the Baptist was out there. He's back baptizing he's teaching in Bethabara and uh, there's people coming to him and so forth and then one special day he's he's there he's baptizing he's teaching and we believe and it seems to indicate certainly that the uh, some of the disciples were there before they were disciples and they're watching and and John uh, John the Baptist says something amazing that the other John recorded for us it's recorded for us in John chapter 1 verse 29 he said this the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him so I uh, just imagine a, a kind of a picturesque event. Christ starts walking. There's these people listening to John the Baptist. Andrew was there and so forth. And they're, they're kind of watching and seeing. And all of a sudden he looks and he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now for you and I who know what the wages of our sin is, that's a great statement, isn't it? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. You can imagine on that day, everybody's attention is drawn and brought to him. I'm telling you, that is a Hollywood moment. We don't like Hollywood, but that's a good moment, movie moment, where everybody's eyes are just turned and drawn to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And literally, that word behold, we've noted it before to you in previous messages and sermons, Webster defines it as this, to fix your eyes upon to see with attention, to observe with care. Now listen, you and I, uh, this is the Christmas season, and I love Michigan for this reason. People know how to decorate for Christmas, amen? There's lights on anything and everything, and sometimes there's a hodgepodge, sometimes the colors match and other things, and it's all, but I love it, I love, and it helps with the daylight savings time that you wake up in the morning, it seems like three hours later it's dark again. Uh, so the lights come on early, right? And so 4, 5.30 or whatever the case may be, and so forth, and, and boy, it's fun to drive around. I love loves looking and, and say, hey, kids, look, there's over there. Now, listen, when we do that, I don't say, kids, behold, Christmas lights. Now, that would be biblical, though, wouldn't it? I mean, that's a biblical term. That's literally what behold means. Hey, look, look over there. Pay, get your attention there. And that's literally what John the Baptist was saying. And we know what follows on the heels of that from John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John the Baptist was saying, listen, that is the whole lamb of God. I want to encourage you this morning, literally, I, I, I am so very thankful that throughout the pages of scriptures, you and I are called to fixate our eyes upon Jesus Christ, our Savior, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This message this morning, I, I, I want to do just that. But the New Testament is just full of, 
of these calling us, these times, these instances, these passages of calling us to look at Jesus Christ. They're also in the Old Testament, but often they are more difficult. They're not as clear and obvious uh, there. Sometimes we have to analyze a passage. Sometimes we have to dig deep into a passage to see that in actuality it's referring to Jesus Christ. It's literally saying the title of our message this morning, Behold Your Savior. And I would encourage you, it is a fun practice to read your Bible, especially the Old Testament, and find all of the pictures of Jesus Christ. All of the types, as we like to refer to them, all of the things looking ahead, the prophecies, because boy, are they there. In Psalm chapter 22 is no different. And it's a, it, it, upon first glance, now think about it with me, upon first glance, we might think that this is simply David lamenting the difficult time he's had in his life. And he had those, whether despised by his brothers and pushed down, whether Saul at, at trying to chase him and trying to kill him, hunting him for his life. So we read this chapter and we say, well, yeah, certainly David went through difficult times and hard times, and, and he may indeed have written this psalm, but it's certain this morning, don't miss it, that there is no Old Testament character uh, that suffered all the suffering presented in this psalm and, in addition, was exalted to the degree of the exaltation that is presented in the psalm. So there's no character. In fact, I, I think it's interesting that we see um, as we read through this that, that David may have suffered some of these things. But as David writes this, and as we'll see, that there's a clear description in this chapter of crucifixion, something that David never experienced. I always wondered how that would be for some of these prophets to write these things and not have a clue. You know, David's saying, I did this, and I did this, and they tore my garments, and they, they, they cast lots for them. And David's like, when did this happen to me? Yet the Holy Spirit's leading him to put this in the Psalms as a great prophetical statement of what Jesus Christ would experience. And I just always, I just wouldn't put myself there. I mean, what was he thinking? He's writing of his hands being pierced and his feet being pierced. Would, would he be like me? He'd think, man, I hope that doesn't happen in the future for me. But he's writing about it. It's so prophetical. We'll see that, and this chapter is replete with it. What's most amazing is as this chapter describes the crucifixion, do you realize that it is probably, not probably, amazingly it is, we have a more vivid description of Christ's crucifixion than we have in some of the four Gospels. Here in Psalm 22 is a description, a, a picture, a looking ahead to what Christ was going to endure on the cross of Calvary for you and for me. It even starts out, we don't have time to read the whole psalm, we'll just pick out a few verses here and there, but it even starts out in verse 1. Notice it, notice what the words say in Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You remember those words? Matthew chapter number 27, verse 46, records that Jesus Christ said that on the cross. So it's kind of obvious right from the get-go that we're speaking of this. So these are prophetical words. They're speaking of Jesus Christ. And as we'll see, it goes well beyond his crucifixion. So what are we to learn today? If this chapter is indeed saying, behold your Savior, this is Christ, this is the Messiah that's coming for all of us, behold the Lamb of God, what is it drawing our attention to today? Well, look at verse 6. Let's note a couple things that are found. We can't note all of it, but let's pick out a few things. Verse 6, 
But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. First of all, we're introduced, and there's verses all around it, but we'll single out verse 6, a sobering description of our Savior. What is it? Well, he is the reproached Savior. He's reproached of men. Now, we all like the, the turnarounds in life. What do you mean by that, Pastor Henry? Well, a sports team and a coach that turns around a season, it starts off bad, and, they, and you, can, you wish they turned it around, kind of like Detroit fans every season, right? We wish they turned it around, right? And uh, maybe, uh, same idea, a business that rebounds. They're on the brink of bankruptcy, and they turn it around, and they come back, and that's fantastic. Maybe even someone who, who's lost just a ton of weight, they, they've redesigned their lifestyle, and boy, they just rebounded well it's a turnaround or maybe even someone with an addiction they they're so far in the depths and god is able to help them and and they gain freedom from that and and boy they just rebound it's a turnaround we all like turnarounds in life they get our attention may i submit to you as we think of jesus christ was there any greater turnaround in all of history than that which occurred in the week leading up to jesus christ's crucifixion I mean, let's think about it. Let's remind ourselves. Here was a mob of people exalting him, giving him glory, giving him adoration as he comes into the city. They're literally worshiping. And just a few days later, many of these same people, incited by hypocritical religious leaders of the day, they're cursing God, Jesus Christ. They're demanding his death. And remember the greatest statement? Let his blood be upon us and our children. Now, you talk about a turnaround. And we understand what transpired that entire week, and we understand how that was incited by the religious leaders. But I'll tell you, my friend, to go from worshiping and exalting the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to just a few days later condemning him, demanding his death, and saying, I'll be guilty for it. That's quite a turnaround, isn't it? Quite a turnaround. I would, I would submit that I think it's the greatest in all of history. Turnaround for the negative, of course. They spat on him. They mocked him. They truly reproached him and despised him. To read of his treatment, to, to consider his walk of shame to that hill, Golgotha, where he was crucified, to dwell upon his treatment, even there through the mean and unkind words, bring yourself off the cross, uh, save yourself. And the one thief mocking him, uh, uh, you think about it, all that treatment, all those words hurled at him, the mockery, the ridicule, the despising remarks, paints a picture that this verse captures. He was despised by people. He was reproached. All the people. His disciples has fled. The few gathered there to observe his crucifixion were probably a very quiet minority, possibly even viewing the events from a distance. This verse encapsulates and pictures well all that he went through as being reproached. But there is a silver lining, isn't there? People held him in contempt, there's no doubt. But I sure am thankful he didn't quit. He didn't stop. He kept going on the mission. He stayed the course. And who did he do it for? For you and for me. I asked you some time ago on a Sunday night that we observed the Lord's Supper, much like tonight. What would it have taken us to turn around? 
What, what would it call? What, what would have to happen? Would, would we say at the plucking of the beard? And boy, today I'm glad I don't have one, huh? If that were to happen, the plucking of the beard, the, the, the crown of thorns planted upon your head, what would it take? The beating, the whipping, the mockery, the ridicule, people spitting on you. What, uh, where would we say, okay, enough is enough? Boy, I sure am thankful that Jesus Christ never reached such a point. He was reproached, He was our reproached Savior. And what a Savior He is. But this psalm goes on. Look at verse 7 with me. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. And we'll get into verse 7 in a moment to see the same. But notice it. He was the reproach Savior. Number two, He was the rejected Savior. He was the rejected Savior. Now, some of us have experienced this, haven't we? we we've gone through this on a human level, uh, rejection. See, nothing reveals rejection found in a person's heart, note it, like his or her words. See, if someone rejects you, it's going to come out in their words. It's going to spring forth. If, if someone can look at you and say something to this effect, I hate you, it's a pretty good indicator that in their heart they have rejected you. If someone can look at you and say, I hate you, they have rejected you in their heart. If they say it with a little snort, if they say it with a little laugh of contempt, a a snicker portraying much scorn, you'd be further convinced and appropriately so. And and literally, that's what's prophesied in these verses, that that they're going to stick out the lip, they're going to say things, they're going to scorn Jesus Christ, the Savior. And boy, you only need to read the accounts in the Gospels to find out that this comes true. That as much physical abuse that Jesus Christ suffered, he suffered great verbal abuse. Mocking his deity. Mocking who he was and what he did and the, the miracles he performed and who he claimed to be. We would put this or make this simple statement. Before he was ever an accepted as an accepted savior, he was a rejected savior. In the hearts of men, and it was expressed in their hateful and scornful words. It was expressed that he was rejected. His own received him not. Rejected. They laughed at him. They scorned him. In the Old Testament, in those kind of cultures, to shake the head was a great display of disdain. And there was noises they would make and things they would say, too, that go along with it. But just to shake the head showed that great disdain, great contempt, great rejection. They stuck out the lip in attacking him with words. This was how the Messiah was to be treated, David is here prophesying. Words that flowed from a heart of rejection. Understand that, that those who stood at the foot of the cross, they weren't there to watch the Savior die, the Messiah die. They were there in their minds to say, okay, he was an imposter. He needs to be crucified and put to death. He's causing problems. He's not the promised one. He's not the Messiah. Interestingly, uh, they despise the thought of him being the Savior. They're trying to do anything and everything they could to disprove such a, nation, a notion. This wasn't the Savior of mankind. He is a, he's a fake, a heretic, a false teacher, a false rabbi. You know, it's ironic, though, that those people gathered at the foot of the cross, that, that their hearts were full of attempts and desire to see him dethroned and, and exposed as not the real thing. Ironically, it was these people on that faithful day that proved that he was indeed the Messiah. Yeah, how was that? Well, look at verse number 8 with me. 
Remember, verse 7, all they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, notice it, verse 8. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Okay, sounds like an innocuous uh, statement or verse. Well, what's interesting is this. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 43, Jesus Christ is on the cross. There's people standing at the foot there, and, and the religious leaders are there, the chief priests and others, and they're mocking Jesus Christ. Remember, these are the ones who rejected him, who wanted to do anything to disprove that he was the Messiah. Here's what Matthew records for us. This is what they said to Jesus Christ. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? The very people who wanted to disprove he was the Messiah just proved Psalm 22 applied to Jesus Christ. A prophecy given by David in Psalm 22 where he says, the people are going to look at me and they're going to say, quote, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. And the very people who wanted to disprove with every ounce of being, every ounce of power in themselves, that he wasn't the Messiah, isn't it ironic? And I'll say this, I think God has a good sense of humor. He uses those very people to prove, you know who was hanging on the cross? Indeed, it was the Messiah, the Lamb of God. May I say to you this morning, behold your Savior. You see, to know their great hatred for him, their disdain and contempt for any thinking that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah, the Savior, and to see that these very people proved, at least in one way, that he was indeed the the Savior, it's ironic, it's laughable. But God is good. And I would say to you, behold your rejected Savior. And yet, sadly, even today, there are some who still reject Him. Still reject Him. But there is good news in this chapter. We could delve more into these first few verses as they certainly describe the, the crucifixion. They talk about his, uh, how they gape upon him. They talk about the water running from his flesh. It talks about his, his garments being uh, folks casting lots over the garments. It, it, a lot of it is there. We don't have time to look at it. But what's most interesting about this passage is, listen, it doesn't dwell just upon the crucifixion of Christ as a reproached, as a rejected Savior, But we come to a point at verse 22 and following where there's a sudden change. The focal point now is different. It's more triumphant. It is more positive. It It is like, okay, that's in the past. Here is what he is now. And so what we see portrayed for us now in verses 22 and following is a risen Savior. Look at verse 22. Let's read verse 22 and 23. He says this, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel. As I said, we have a reproached Savior. We have a rejected Savior and now a risen Savior. This verse points to the wonderful occasion after Christ's crucifixion where likely Jesus Christ there uh, and his glorified body at times, he gathers with the brethren, the disciples, his followers at different times, the upper room and other places to rejoice. And here's the key, to proclaim what God has done and is doing. Literally, here's the switch. If we could say a switch was turned in verse 21 and 22 or 22 and 23 following, is this. The job is done. 
Jesus Christ has been crucified, and as he said on the cross, it is finished. The mission was a success, and now we see Jesus Christ in a different light. But let's take encouragement. Because I don't know about you, but I don't like to see loved ones suffer. And I I sure am thankful today that Jesus Christ is no longer suffering. I'm thankful today that Jesus Christ is no longer hanging on a cross. And, and, and may I tell you that this is not a, a, a big deal. I'm not trying to make it such. But I cringe every time I see a cross with Jesus Christ's statue still hanging on it. Because, friend, Jesus Christ is not on the cross. He defeated it. He's gone. It's done. It's, uh, it's finished. May I put it this way? There's no more suffering to be had for Jesus Christ. No more contempt to be endured. No more torture. No more ridicule. No more ill treatment. He is a risen Savior. Our heart breaks when we come to the Lord's Supper because Christ and what He did for us, and, and right it should. But man, we ought to find great comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ will not suffer anymore. He has defeated sin and death and the grave completely. He's a risen Savior. Now what's his mission? His mission now is, as these verses point to, is to proclaim the name of God, to ignite the brethren in a chorus of praise that sweeps around the world to every country, to every people group. Jesus Christ is the risen Savior, and he's busy proclaiming his own name among the brethren so they can go out and they can share, as the Bible put it, the only name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. That's the mission now. And so, what does the future hold for this risen Savior and those who hold Him dear? The rest of the chapter uh, takes us from the time of the early church and after His resurrection to the present age of grace, dispensation, and to the future promise awaiting to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is really a laying out of the, the future of Christ. It's quite interesting. Look with me in verse 27, if you will. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And he is the governor among all the nations. Isn't it interesting? Our verse for the choir, Isaiah 9, 6. He's the counselor. He is the governor. He is the prince of peace. He is the king. He's all those things. And that is the culmination. Isaiah 9, 6 is not talking about his birth. Oh, yes, it's referencing that he's coming, but the birth initiated what's going to come. When Jesus Christ, and here's what it is, he he, he is, um, let's go on to the next one, he's a ruling Savior. He's a ruling Savior. May I remind you that the day is coming when Jesus Christ will sit upon the one and only throne that will rule the entire earth and all that is therein. It's his millennial kingdom. He will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow before Him, and He will be held in reverence by every person. My, what a stark contrast to what we saw in the earlier part of this chapter. What a journey we've come on from the reproached and the, the rejected Savior and to now the King of kings and Lord of lords ruling all. 
It's an exciting chapter. One commentator observed this, verse 27, and as preachers like to do and commentators like to do, he alliterated it. Verse 27, he said this, he will convert the nations. You see a reference to that, obviously. All of them shall turn unto the Lord. You see, uh, he says in verse 28, he will control the nations. He will govern them. And then in verse 29, uh, he will content the nations, if you can use it as a verb, and uh, he will content them. Look at verse 29. We didn't read that. Let's look there. It says this, all they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship all they that go down to the dust shall bow before him and none can keep alive his own soul speaking of their dependence upon him and his great provision now listen to this now now think about this for a moment i think this is so crucial to putting ourselves within this passage to embracing behold what a savior think about it you and i what makes him uh, the savior so precious to each one of us well, because in our own sins, we stood on the edge of the grave, on the edge of eternity, and, and we were doomed to spend it in hell in the lake of fire, atoning for our own sins for all of eternity. We were doomed without hope. We, our future was bleak. It was fearful. It was tormentful. That's what we face until Jesus Christ died for us. He died for us, and through faith, our trust in him, what happened? Everything changed. Our future Now, think of those who this verse refers to. They aren't just in great need spiritually, but they're in great need physically. What have they just endured or survived? The great tribulation. And as these that have come out of the great tribulation, let's be reminded, there was horrific death, there was terrible want and hunger, there was inescapable danger and sorrow, unimaginable trouble in every square inch of this globe. But now, and don't miss it, now they have a king who loves them, king who provides for them, king who protects them. He is a physical Savior as much as He is a spiritual Savior. And may I say this? That is very true for you and I today. If we did not have hope that God was bringing us not only spiritual salvation, but the reality of physical salvation, that physically we won't be in hell for all of eternity, uh, this life would hold much more value, wouldn't it? It'd be that much more precious. If we didn't have the promise that one day we'll have a perfected body and we'll join Jesus Christ in heaven. And my friend, can you imagine for just a moment, you put yourself in the shoes of those who've just come out of the tribulation. A third of man has died, if not more, obviously. And then all these plagues and trials and fire falling and boy, people crying out to die and so forth. They've just come from the tribulation And then they get to enter into the millennial kingdom where there is a king of kings and lord of lords who provides for them and protects them, nourishes them. How will they view the king of kings and lord of lords? When we read that every knee shall bow, that everybody will turn to Lord, don't think that it's going to be, and sometimes we get this image that maybe there's angels pushing everybody down. That they're forced to. No, 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 friend, listen to me. If you were to endure the tribulation, you couldn't fall fast enough before the king who saves you, who provides for you. Just like you and I, when we come to good understanding in, in terms and understanding that, that comprehends that my sin makes me deserving of hell, and the fact is, for all of eternity, I could be spending life there tormented, burning without being consumed bodily in and, and my soul, and, and yet Jesus Christ delivered you and me from that. Can't help but fall down and worship him. 
And my goodness, I'll tell you this. I, why is this life here, this short vapor? Why, why isn't it of more value to us? Because I'm telling you, friend, I'm looking forward to the day where I live for the rest of eternity under the rule of a perfect Savior. He's the ruling Savior. And we don't have to imagine very much this reality. But the fact is this, when that day comes, we'll no longer be sitting under corrupt government, but under the rule of our perfect, providing Savior. May I say this morning, believer, behold your Savior. So when you and I came to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, oh yes, we were trusting in the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. But I'll also tell you this, we were also putting our faith and trust in the ruler of the world, the eventual ruler of the world the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as will be displayed in the eventual millennial kingdom. The psalmist, David, ends this chapter with one more declaration, and it's this. We've seen the rejected, the reproached Savior, the, uh, the risen Savior, the ruling Savior, and one last one he presents to us is simply this, the righteous Savior, the righteous Savior. Look at verse 30 and 31. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. Now listen to me. I, th- this is the one that I just, uh, the point that I, my heart's been dwelling upon for several days. I, I think this is so neat what the psalmist presents to us. You know, there's something to be said for when a reputation or a memory is so long gone that it's almost completely forgotten. Those of us who have lived and seen a few summers here on earth, we've probably forgotten more than we remember, amen? And sometimes we're glad for that because there's no doubt some of us have worked hard for years to erase the memory of a mistake, a bad deed, a a lapse in judgment, an ill-gotten reputation. There might be some here who have worked hard at erasing a memory that brings pain, whose remembrance only stirs up old hurt and sorrow, heartache. And as time passes and as we work hard to erase that memory, we trust that as that memory, as time comes, that memory fades. And I love how this chapter ends. It ends with a similar idea being presented to us with the advent of a new generation of children born in the millennial kingdom. See, the Bible speaks of the fact in that millennial kingdom there will be children born. And as the inhabitants of earth that have survived the tribulation will have children. Now, here's what's needed. Here's what these two verses present. These are children of peace. They, they've been born during peaceful times. They've been born under the rule of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only, they only know contentment. They don't know uh, the lack of peace or, or heartache or war. They only know that God provides. That Jesus Christ is, is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, a loving ruler. How does the verse put it? Shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. And here's the best part. Don't miss this. They only know Jesus as the righteous ruler and Savior of all. What do you mean? Well, simply this. Long gone are the thoughts of him being reproached 
and rejected and scorned. Their distant memory with little need to be brought up, if only to enhance his righteousness, says that he hath done this. You ever talk to your kids about what used to be? I'm 45, last time I checked. And my, how the world has changed in my lifetime. Cell phones and computers and all the technology, all the gadgets and internet. and I mean, so many things have changed. Have you ever found yourself telling your kids and they're looking at you like in utter disbelief? They can't imagine it. They just can't. It's like, what? You mean there was no internet? No Google? You mean not everyone had a phone? Yeah, they're constant. They don't get it. You know what's going to be amazing? This thrills my heart. There'll be a generation that grows up in the millennial kingdom that has no visual, no even ability to imagine that the one that sits on the throne was once rejected, was once reproached. It's not that we won't speak of it. We'll talk about how he died on the cross, how he delivered us from our sins. But isn't it amazing to think of a generation that grows up and only knows peace under the rule of Jesus Christ? Man, what a Savior we serve. Behold your Savior, believer. The day is coming where, uh, what will he be reminded or known for? His reputation will be that of a perfect ruler, the most holy God, the Prince of Peace, the most honorable leader one could ever ask for. He is no longer a rejected Messiah, the scorned Savior, the contemptible Christ. He is the righteous ruler of all. May I put it this way, and this is a day I look forward to, that his glory and praise will be on every lip. His adoration will flow from every heart, and his reputation will be only of righteousness. What a day that will be. And I say to you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, may I just put it bluntly, you want in on this, friend. You want in on this. This is the bottom floor. Get on board now. Trust in Jesus Christ. Don't, don't wait. He wants to be your Savior, your ruler, your King, even today. Just trust Him. Now, believer, take heart. When we celebrate Christmas, we're not just celebrating a babe in a manger. We're not just celebrating a Savior on a cross. We're celebrating a righteous rule that will rule for all of eternity. And by God's grace, you and I will be there to see it. That's what we celebrate. I've said it before in these Christmas messages. The fact is this. Every time you and I see a little manger set, we ought not just think of the manger. We ought to think of the throne that Jesus Christ will once sit upon. And the hearts that he has come to rule over, ours included. You know, tonight when we celebrate and commemorate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate so much more as he's coming to bring all of these things to pass that we have spoken of. Will you join me this morning? Will you look to the future this Christmas? Will you simply heed the command, Behold your Savior. Set your eyes on him. Fixate your eyes upon your glorious King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords this Christmas. And may he rule in our hearts even today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this glimpse, this picture, this drawing of our attention and our focus to Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for these prophetical words in the Old Testament that stir our minds, that, that challenge us to not get, uh, Lord, burdened down by today and what we see, but cause us to look prophetically to the future. Father, I'm so very thankful that Jesus Christ is suffering no more, that He is done with that mission, that He has paid once and for all the cost of my sins and the cost of every person's sins. Lord, I pray for people to trust in Him. I pray for some here who haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to do that even today. And Father, I'm so very thankful that You just didn't let the story stop there in Your Word, but You told us of the future to come. As we serve a risen Savior, Father, we're thankful that we'll sit under a ruling Savior. Grateful that He is a righteous judge, a righteous ruler. Lord, my heart aches and yearns for the day when a generation arises in the millennial kingdom that only knows peace. And they'll praise Jesus Christ endlessly. Father, we look forward to that day. We're thankful for the promise of it. Help us to keep on keeping on today. This Christmas season, Father, may our hearts be drawn not only to that manger, not only to the cross of Calvary, but to the throne of the future kingdom. May we look forward to it. May we anticipate it. May we prepare for it by seeing souls saved, growing ourselves in the likeness of Jesus Christ, and worshiping you. Thank you for today. Thank you for your word. May it be a constant encouragement to us. With heads bowed and